This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Beyond Zero is a not-for-profit research and education organisation. We design blueprints for a zero-emissions economy. As climate change becomes more apparent, leaders will use these well-researched plans that show a transition is possible from a 19th-century fossil fuel-based economy with its climate-changing emissions to a zero-emissions 21st century. Check out our website for reports on zero-emissions energy, zero-emissions buildings and zero-emissions high-speed rail. Podcasts of our talks with a who's who of climate change action are all available at Beyond Zero Emissions. If you have some ideas for this show, contact us at radio team at beyondzeroemissions.org. Welcome to Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show. I'm Andy. Tonight's show is called The Engineer and the Ecologist. Viv revisits two BZE reports. Energy with engineer David Hood AM and the land care plan with ecologist Daryl Tonkinson. As Bruce Pascoe told us recently, grasslands sequestered carbon. Aboriginal farmers were so good that early explorers like Sturt were able to sit down with them and eat cake made from the flower of perennial kangaroo grass. Viv took a handful of grass to Daryl Tonkinson. He is an ecologist up in Ballarat. She asks him all her questions about carbon farming and grassland. Daryl will be on at about 5.30, but first, Viv talks to David Hood, the engineer. Tonight's guest is adjunct professor of engineering, David Hood. He is the deputy chair of the Beyond Zero Emissions Board and has received the Order of Australia for his enormous contribution to engineering and lifting public awareness of sustainability. Could you take us back to the 1980s when you had an aha moment leading to lots of involvements way beyond the standard role of an engineer? I don't like talking about my pre-1980 work. I was involved in big infrastructure yeah. for the military and civil aviation, uh-huh. um, military airports and civil airports. But the aha moment was when I took over and commissioned Australia's new Parliament House, or new Parliament House as it was then in the mid-80s. And I just could not believe how terribly inefficient the building was. It was designed with a brief from the politicians that said no new technology, everything had to be proven, and thus, when I started operating the building, I discovered it was 25 years old already, although it was just handed over. Um, and I, I just couldn't believe the energy consumption. So we started a program to look at how we could save energy. And uh, just as an example, within the first 18 months, we were able to cut the energy consumption by nearly 40%, which is quite remarkable. But of course the funny thing was that in those days the politicians didn't like that because I wasn't buying electricity and that reduces the GDP. Can you believe that? Mm. I made the building more efficient but they didn't like it because I was interfering with GDP growth. (laughs) So that was the aha moment and ever since that mid-80s period I just got deeper and deeper into uh, energy efficiency and particularly sustainability in the built environment mostly but more recently... Uh, branched out into working with um, company boards, 
in terms of getting them to understand the high risks of not properly addressing sustainability and particularly climate change. Yeah. Well, now you are influencing change in the energy culture of Australia very broadly, I'd say, and I'd like you to take us into your work with Beyond Zero Emissions. Well, I've been a, I joined uh, Matthew right at the very beginning. Um, he found me on the web and said, oh, here's an energy efficiency person that we need to get on board. So uh, I worked with Matthew through the stationary energy plan. I helped launch it in Brisbane where we had a 1,000 people turn up at the Brisbane Convention Exhibition Centre with uh, Anna Bly, then Premier, uh, to launch it. And uh, since then, I've sort of maintained my interest in all the work that they do. I've helped with the buildings plan because I had done a lot of work in, through Engineers Australia in energy efficiency in buildings. And we got that plan out, and I helped launch that in Brisbane. Uh, and, of course, more recently, we've launched the, um, the agricultural plan, uh, the um, electric vehicles a couple of weeks back, and the Australia as a renewable energy superpower we launched at QUT as well. Mm and the electric uh, train, the high-speed rail plan we launched. So I've been involved in all of them. But my main interest now is in the governance and sort of the future work that BZE can do um, in terms of moving from, I guess, the research into what needs to be done to how we can actually make it happen. Because as an engineer, I uh, yes, I like research, but I like to see things um, change and make things happen. Mm, well, me too. I, I would like to just ask you a really simple question. Um, will a transition to renewable energy be enough to slow climate change? No, it won't. Um, the, even if we do all the right things with renewable energy, energy efficiency and all of those things, we still run a very, very serious risk of not getting below a two-degree rise in temperature from pre-industrial times. And therefore, I think we're going to have to look at um, drawdown of CO2 from the atmosphere. How can we pull CO2 out of the atmosphere or other greenhouse gases as well, of course, and that, to me, is an engineering challenge. It's something that engineers love, a problem to be solved. Um, and, and if we can do that and start pulling out the CO2 that's already in there, because, as you know, CO2 lasts for 100 years or more in the atmosphere uh, and causing the radiative forcing that it does, which is adding the energy back into the Earth's systems. So I think that uh, renewable energy on its own won't do the trick. It'll, it'll go a long, long way um, I worry that it might not even get us to 2 degrees, to below 2 degrees. But to get down to 1.5, we're definitely going to have to look at um, pulling CO2 and other greenhouse gases out of the atmosphere. I've done a few interviews on that, but it's quite hard to find anyone who's an expert because people are very frightened of it, I think, geoengineering and so on. Who do you think I well, should I speak to? That, who's the, who are think, leading on that? I don't think pulling CO2 out of the atmosphere I would regard as geoengineering. It's just rectifying a problem that we've created. The geoengineering, to my mind, is, is the reflecting of energy from the sun. Um, and these are the things that are going on in terms of, um, you know, putting mirrors in space to reflect the sun away from the earth and putting particulates in the uh, upper stratosphere, um, sulfur particulates and things like that. And that, to me, is interfering with the natural systems in a, in a horrendous way whereas pulling CO2 out of the atmosphere is fixing a problem that we ourselves have created. Um, 
And I think that see, putting the mirrors in space and saying, it's, OK, we've, we've deflected the energy, you can keep burning coal, mm. and God knows where that'll end up. That's right. Well, so. I spoke to Clive Hamilton. I think the first interview I ever did with yeah. this show was Clive <laughs> Hamilton talking about those things. But how would you pull down the um, excess CO2? Well, there's, uh, the, the best thing, of course, is, is reforestation, and we have to do that. Um, that pulls CO2 out of the atmosphere, but it, it's, it's problematic in that it only does it during the high growth periods of, of plants, and then you have to trap it in the, in the timbers. So you need to, when the timbers get old or when they're about to die, you don't want them releasing the CO2. So if you can cut down the timbers and lock the, CO, lock the carbon rather up in the timber, that is by going back to timber construction, uh, and also, um, some people have looked at um, putting timber under high pressure, yeah, putting them down in deep ocean wells, putting timber down there with a high pressure will maintain the, the carbon lock in the timber. Um, that There's also a lot of work going on in terms of um, concrete that's green, they call it green concrete, that actually can draw CO2 out of the atmosphere and continue strengthening the concrete. Uh, and that, of course, manufacture of cement is a very high greenhouse intense industry, as we're going to show in the industrial plan that BZE is embarked on now. Um, but there are those sorts of things that you can look at. But I think that we're going to have to have probably big suckers that pull air through and through chemical reactions can, can take the CO2 out of the atmosphere and release a more balanced atmosphere back into, into the atmosphere. All right. Well, we'll, watch, we'll watch this space watch that then. One, yeah. Yes. Well, that's right. Well, th this program every week we do the two programs, and I yeah. think listeners, you know, eventually there'll be a listener who just hears one of our programs and says, "That's my." You know, that's my affinity group, and I, and then we'll get Excellent. someone who works with us, you know, yes, on those things, because I think our value is as a think tank that generates sort of enthusiasm, and then eventually there's this wonderful expertise who seems to come around each one of the reports. No, that, that's great. Please, yeah. and you're doing a wonderful job in that respect, and please, yeah. anybody who's, who's listening who can uh, help us with any of these research projects because of your expertise, we'd love to hear from you. Yes. Well, look, um, David, I report on climate action in the community, and so I end up at industry conferences quite a bit. It's strange for me because, you know, I, <laughs> it's usually mostly men in suits, and, and, and a lot of the knowledge they have, I've never heard of it before. But I, I heard one man talking about a wind farm in Romania. He'd managed this project. It was a, worth $11 billion. He had to get EU finance, and all the approvals took years, and I was quite impressed by his expertise. And... and you know, I thought, gosh, this man's really very valuable. And then I heard Andy Vesey from AGL who said, yes. oh, we're going to keep our coal-fired power station open until 2048 because yep. I can. And, and then I thought, look, there's terrific expertise and terrific money here, but it's mismanaged in a neoliberal economy. It's so ruthless and messy and all the people there are kind of vying with each other and they don't seem to have any guidance or co coordination in a way. And I kept thinking of Roosevelt. I did a previous show on, you know, the emergency mobilisation idea. Yes. We looked at, read, reread quite a few books about Roosevelt, and I thought if he was here, he could harness all this expertise and harness this money, and he would mandate the closure of some of the assets and turbocharge others. 
And I wonder, do you yeah. think this is the sort of leadership we need, a sort of new deal? Well, look, uh, Vivian, to, to mobilise the community, and you've you struck on something that Ian Dunlop and I are working on in terms of um, you know, the, the huge risks of not addressing climate change. And I think we do need a warlike mobilisation. But to, to mobilise the community, you need four things to, co- to coalesce, to come together. The first one is threat. Um, you know, the, the German, Germany posed a threat to the United Kingdom. But that, that, that was okay. That was over the borders and somewhere else. And that's like climate change. That's, that's somebody else's problem. It's not my problem. So the threat's there, but it's not. But the next point is immediacy. You need to have immediacy. Now, in the UK situation, when the bombs started falling on London, that was immediate. And, and we've got the occasional immediacy when we get a, a cyclone coming through or mm. Katrina or San, Sandy hitting New York, that sort of thing. But that's soon forgotten, and we soon return to you know our, our fascination with movie stars and Kim Kardashian's posterior and things like that. And so we forget very quickly the immediacy until the next storm. But that might be six months or a year away. So immediacy hasn't hit us yet, not like the bombs raining down every day on London. And the third thing you need is cost. Now, at the moment, economists leave out, they call it these externalities, when they start pricing things for a project, for instance. They say, oh, carbon dioxide emissions, no, that's too hard. Let's leave that out in our costing. So they don't add a cost in for the CO2 going into the atmosphere. They they tend to think the atmosphere is just so huge, forget it, it's not a real cost to anything. But we're starting to realise that, and that's why we're bringing prices into carbon, uh, you know, emissions pricing. Now, we had that cost started, uh, but Tony Abbott soon got rid of that, of course, because he didn't want to interfere with people's enjoyment of movie stars and so on, so he he, he got rid of the tax, the great big new tax, he Mm. called it. Um, it wasn't actually a tax, but we won't go there. Mm-hmm. Um, so the cost, that's the thing we haven't got at the moment because there are either externalities or there's no price on carbon. And the last thing that must happen is we need leadership. And Churchill stood up, well, they brought in um, rationing and everything, of course, for the cost in England. But then Churchill stood up and he was the leader that actually mobilised the people. They went onto a war footing and they won the war. Um, so we don't have any leadership. I mean, we've got, you know, instead of Churchill, we wind up with Abbott and um, mm. my friend Malcolm Turncoat. Um, and, you know, he understands the science. I've had long talks with Malcolm before he was Prime Minister, and he knows the science. And he was actually, when he launched the BZE Stationary Energy Plan, you've seen the video. I was there in, in Sydney. I was there. there Sydney, yes. Yeah. And I love sending that video to people. I know. But he has been captured by the far right wing of the party and he's, he's to maintain his leadership and Prime Minister, he has to just do what they want. So he just is, is not honest to himself and that worries me about politicians anyway, yeah. but we well, won't go into that. Yeah, well, every, everyone, these leaders emerge when... When the time is right, I think, as in right. the war, yeah. uh, Churchill was in, so, the, so in the wilderness what, for a long time. But listen, David, I want to you ask know, you... Got, I just want to finish yeah. that. Oh, as yeah. you know, we've got the mobilisation um, declaration yeah. going. And there's been a bit of a storm going out on the internet that recently. We've put up um, a, a proposal that everybody on Facebook invites 10 people. And they invite 10 people and they invite mm-hmm. 10 people. And in, just in three or four days, we've, we've gone out to over six, 7,000 people via that, mm. and already we've had hundreds signing up to the declaration. Well, that's good, but I'm worried about the public who don't get it, and I think my next question is really about media and education, you know, ed- educating the public mind. I think the people yeah. have been very confused by disinformation, 
And you could see it happening in the South Australian blackout. You know, there were suddenly two narratives. One, that the transmission lines had been knocked out. This is just the day it happened, or the second day. Already that story, okay, transmission lines have knocked out uh, our energy. And then there was suddenly a new narrative saying, oh, no, it's something to do with the wind energy and we're reliant on renewable energy and blah, blah, blah. And so everyone got into it very early, before the storms were even over, they were talking that way. So I think there's a kind of public confusion created by the media and, well, the people who make those statements. And when we had blackouts in Melbourne last weekend, for example, no one said, oh, there's something dodgy about our brown coal-fired power. No No one mentioned it. It's just, oh, we just had a blackout. So do you think the renewable energy industry, as, uh, you know, I go to those conferences, all those people there, do you think they need to employ some journalists and place some educated opinion pieces out there in the media much more deliberately, even engage in the social media and just make much more of a concerted effort to turn that tide so when everything comes up like that, that they, they counteract it. Well, the, the problem with the, the media, of course, is who controls the media. And, I know and that. We, we are known as Murdoch land here yeah, in Australia. Yeah. And, and all the Murdoch journalists, are, you know, I, 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 it's covert, I think. You know, it's that they are instructed not to push this agenda. And I think that the whole thing in Adelaide of, of blaming renewable energy was to avert people's attention to the fact that that was a pretty horrendous storm that went through and was exacerbated by yeah. climate change. Well, I'll so, tell you what, the next day also on social media, I got there's one guy called Keetan Joshi, and he's been connected with the wind industry. He's a young bloke. And yep. um, he started putting out this funny thing, you know, for that generation, younger generation, funny hashtag, and it said, um, blame it on renewables. And he took all these funny photos, you know, like a tree had fallen down, blame it on renewables, blame it. And, and people <laughs> got off on that. They got into it. So I think, you know, you can, und- you have to go counterculturally if yeah, Rupert Murdoch's yeah. running the show. We have to, if you want to have a climate emergency and you really want to win, you have to somehow sabotage the other media. But I think employing some journalists who are well-informed and pay them to follow these stories and just do everything they can to well, get those stories out. There are a few around. There um, are, but Graham, Graham Redfern, for instance, who was employed in the in the Murdoch Press, mm. in the Courier Mail in Brisbane, until they asked him to to leave after he supposedly lost a debate with Lord Monckton. Um, there's uh, Lisa Cox, who's done a lot of work around um, you know coal mining and some of the uh, investigative reporting she's done is amazing. Oh, I know, uh, and, and and Giles Jeff Parkinson. Hill in Sydney and, yeah. I know. Look, they're there, but uh, there's not enough of them, and I, I don't yeah. see them at those conferences. I'm there for community radio. But they all they're all now either freelancing or out on their own because well, they're not in the big media, so it's very hard for them to get get, get um, exposure. I know. Well, I don't know. It's just an idea, but I really feel cross when I see that. I think. Oh, so do I. You know, someone who's got good words, because scientists, often I interview people, and they're not really good with their words. They, they, they're they so cautious and all that. And But a journalist knows how to put it in a kind of... I think that uh, GetUp does a great job. They do, yeah. Um, you know, and some of those avars in, in, in the US, they're amazing. And I think that the Climate Council with Amanda McKenzie as the CEO is doing a remarkable job in getting reports out, and, and they're good at actually getting uh, social media moving on it. Yeah. But again, again, I, I get that same feeling. It's the same, same people that turn up, the same, same people that, that yeah. like the reports. You know, yeah, it is. And we need to reach those other people 
you know. Anyway, look, I, I'd yeah. like to move on to the Paris okay. Paris Agreement because you have had some comments about that, and I think yes. the, interest, the thing I'm interested in about the Paris Climate Agreement was it was going to mobilise about $100 billion per year by the year 2020 to assist developing countries yes. to reduce mm. their greenhouse gas emissions and adapt to the climate change that's already devastating them. Well, I had Tim Buckley on the radio just yesterday saying that China has trillions in stranded assets invested in coal-fired power stations. They're not going to use them. They're using them at half speed now. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And I thought $100 billion world, you know, for all the poorer countries doesn't sound like enough for the whole developing world, so leave that to one side. I mean, $100 billion doesn't sound enough. But as an engineer, yes. would you paint us a picture of the infrastructure that you think developing countries could put in to mitigate climate change? I think probably the best thing that they can do is look at solar photovoltaics. Um, I've done a lot of work in Mozambique, and I was amazed at, at a couple of things. Firstly, Everyone in Mozambique's got a mobile phone, despite the fact that at the time I was there, or 12 years ago now, um, it, it was the, one of the poorest countries in Africa. It was coming out of a civil war, of course, but still everyone had a mobile phone. So they are tech savvy. Um, the other funny thing was that uh, there's a lot of um, uh, BMWs and Mercedes running around in Maputo, the capital city, who, which um, I, their origin is a bit doubtful. They've stolen from South Africa and brought across the border and sold to the rich people in Maputo. But the problem is they're driving these high-tech vehicles on a system that isn't able to cope. The roads, all of the signage, the con traffic control devices and everything are not built for these new cars so they, they tend to leapfrog but they leapfrog in the wrong direction but it's it's community grids and local pv that will help these countries i mean i saw for instance i was working out of an office in the mosal aluminium smelter just outside maputo and when they switched that smelter on it was one of the best aluminium smelters in the world pure 99.99 percent pure aluminium coming out of it so technology great but when they turned that smelter on, the electricity consumption of the nation suddenly doubled. Right. That's how much electricity went into making aluminium at, at Moselle. Mm. So, so, you know, we don't need that sort of thing. They were only building that smelter there because there was cheap labour. There was very cheap coal-fired electricity from South Africa, which they were buying across the border. And there was good ship ports there to take the aluminium out and bring the alumina from Perth in. Mm. So it, that's why it was built there. But when, I, when you went up country and saw the villages, that's ideal for microgrids and photovoltaics. Mm. Um, Mozambique, a lot of sunshine um, and a lot of hydro too in the area. So there's, you know, they could do renewables easily. Mm. But they also have a lot of gas and some coal. So you know, there's the, they run in there, the, the big companies go in there and they say, we can get cheap coal, cheap gas, let's do it. And those governments, of course, are caught up with bribery and all sorts of other things, and they fall victim to the big companies' influence. Yeah. So there's a lot of problems in those evolving economies. I prefer to call them evolving economies mm. rather than developing mm. nations. Um, but if we could get, and I've been involved in a couple of projects which unfortunately haven't got anywhere yet, but we've been looking at going in and putting solar farms into, into uh, Namibia and uh, Botswana and Mozambique and places like that, which would work beautifully, uh, and they would, you know, leapfrog into um, probably we're talking about probably a hundred megawatt farms. Mm. So they're not they're not small, they're not microgrid type things. Mm. 
But I think that that's the sort of thing that you could do very quickly and easily in those countries. But I guess one of the problems we're finding is that the governments are easily swayed by the big money of the coal industry and the renewable industry doesn't have that money yet. It still relies on incentives and um, um, small investors and things like that. So there's a big problem to overcome to get this to happen. But I think that the other, the next thing I'd like BZE to look at is microgrids and how we could actually change the whole grid infrastructure. Much of our work, Vivian, as you'd probably know, is assume the grid stays as it is and that we feed into it in a way backwards. We put all our solar thermal plants right out on the edge and feed them back into the grid. Well, the grid wasn't designed for them to come backwards. You know, the, the design is all the heavy loads going out from the generators of the coal-fired power stations right down to small distributions right out on the periphery. Well, if you put a big thermal, solar thermal out on the periphery, you need to then build big infrastructure, you know, uh, higher cables and things to get yeah. the electricity back into the system. So I think we need to look at reinventing the grid, and that's a project that I'm suggesting the board look at mm. um, for, for another research project. Great. Well, that's, that's what I want to hear from you, you know, the, yeah. the futuristic things. Let's and the other futuristic thing, Vivian, if I, if I yes. may, in terms of what the board's thinking about, is that we've produced some wonderful reports, and you've done a mar- remarkable job in helping promote those reports. But where do they go? They sit on shelves, and there's some very intelligent ministers' floors in Parliament House where mm. you can look down, and there's oh, half a dozen BZD reports on the floor. Mm. Nothing's happening. They, they occasionally wave them and say, we've got the plan, look, here's the plan. Mm. But how do we move now to implementation? Now, BZE is not an implementer, but we should be looking at how do we facilitate the implementation of our plans. And one of the things that we've started, of course, as you know, is the Energy Freedom Alliance and the zero carbon communities, zero emissions communities. And they are the implementation sort of arm, if you like, of BZE. We we don't go and do the work, but we consult and we advise and we help uh, councils and we help homeowners get to zero emissions. And I think we've got to really focus a lot more on doing that side of it, implementation. How do we implement all of our plans? Fantastic. Well, I've had I have lots of my own ideas on that too. Having over the years, it's frustrating to see those books sort of, uh, as you Sitting say, gathering dust. <laughs> well, yeah, but it's they're also too hard to read. I, I sort of feel like everything needs to be, again, as I say, where you need good journalists. You need some yeah. people to make it like a, a, a kind of book, like a um, Al Gore's film yeah, was, you know, you, choices book, yeah. it's just a thing you just want to read, or Naomi Klein's recent book, you just want to oh, read it, yeah. but those reports, I've ploughed my way through them, and I, I, I do appreciate the work that goes into them, but you need a kind of a, you know, an a easier version of them, and especially like I like the idea of things going to schools, what about, you know, high school students in year 10 to year 12 age group, you know, they should be right on top of all of this stuff. Well, I don't, I don't know if you know, Vivian, a good friend of mine, uh, Dr. Andrew King, is a chemical engineer and environmental engineer, and he's written a series of uh, books for kids called NG Bear, the NG Bear series. Mm. It's, it's mainly aimed at promoting engineering to primary school children. The first one was NG Bear's Dream, where NG Bear designed and built a robot, and then it went through the iterations, 10 iterations to get the robot perfect. And kids love it, you know, how, the, how it blew up in the air and the switch didn't work or its rocket engines took it into mm. space. That was all wrong until he got it perfect. The next one was NG Bear's Bridge, where he introduced Angelina. And Angelina was the city engineer mm. of, of Manalong, which is the city that he, his company, Barely Engineering, works in. And the next one coming out is NG Bear's Train, where he's looking at maglev and high-speed rail. <laughs> 
Now, I've also got him thinking seriously about um, the NG Bear. Go, we were trying to get NG Bear goes to Paris to bring in the climate change aspects, but of course, uh, the timing overtook us there, and we didn't get that. But I've got Andrew talking with ACF in terms of NG Bear and sustainability. Some theme around sustainability, which will address climate and zero emissions and all that. But when you look into the NG Bear series, um, and I'd recommend you do that. You look at, the, at his laboratory and his house and everything, and his car is electric, his house has got a windmill on the top and it's got photovoltaics. So there's that subtle pushing of all of the agendas that we want. And in, in the NG Bear series, and, and Andrew and I are working on it, he, he calls me the sort of chairman of NG Bear, propri- NG, uh, <laughs> barely engineering proprietary limited. <laughs> um, we're trying to get that through to yeah. kids, and kids will understand it. So, well, I mean, that is I great, think, but I also would like you to do something at the high school level, you know, where people yeah. are going into university. But and they're they, doing science and that. Uh, yeah, of, they need yeah. to be guided more into how exciting this is, but also how urgent it is. And I, I talked to Dr. Gary Ellum from Newcastle. You might know him on the no, um, yeah. um, electric vehicles, and he has an yeah. electric vehicle festival every year, and, it, and he does the same thing. He gets kids to come in, and they fiddle around, and he sets them Wonderful. a challenge to yeah. build an electric bicycle and then they have a race you know and who's going to win the race so Gary Ellums he's a really far-thinking person look yeah. um, David we need to finish but I wanted you to talk now to the listeners who might be thinking something like look there's nothing much I can do or you know they think all oh, the government has to mobilize us to change our habits as they did in the war with petrol rations for example or limiting air travel I, w- I would love a government who oh, says yeah. you can only yeah. have one airplane trip each uh, every three years or something like George Monbiot does but you yeah. know uh, people are thinking that sort of thing unless government does it I can't do anything much and even some listeners might be you know in the renewable energy business I mean, these people I see at conferences but it's frustrating without government incentives they can't turbocharge their efforts well I think the first thing that, that what people have got to realise is that um, politicians will never lead they aren't leaders They're not, the current crop are not leaders they are followers they, they try to win votes so everything they look at is popularism and we've got to change that we've got to start screaming from the rooftops of all our residences uh, that we want change and then they'll start to see hey gee that's why get up and places like that are really good because I was in minister when he was minister of the environment Ralph uh, not Ralph um, Greg Hunt's office Ralph was his dad who I knew <laughs> but I was in his office when the senior advisor came running in and said minister minister get up has got to 275,000 signatures and he said excuse me David I've got to go and see this <laughs> so they do take notice of people signing on to get up petitions and that's where they follow. If all of those people are signing a petition for something, then you can be sure that Greg Hunt was thinking, gee, how can I change my policy to accommodate those voters because they'll vote for me if I change, mm-hmm. you know? So it's, it's, we've got to do that. But people can do lots, Vivian. I mean, you know, when I bought this house that I'm living in in Turinga in Brisbane, the installed lighting in the house was 2.8 kilowatts of lighting. It was mostly those quartz halide downlights. Now the totally installed lighting is only 300 watts. So I can turn every light on in the house and I'm only pulling 300 watts. That's with LEDs and everything. And the the beauty about LEDs that people don't realise is that they give out better light. There's no ultraviolet, so they don't attract insects, unlike fluorescence. Mm. So that's something you can do. Change all your lighting over to LEDs. Look at your rainwater collection systems. You know, use grey water with a filter for your washing machine and your toilets and other things like that and your gardening and so on. 
make your house energy efficient with insulation and insulation is a no-brainer it pays for itself in a very very short time um, heat recovery in my Queenslander I've got a huge pyramid tin roof above the house the temperature up there in winter is 50 degrees in the air that's trapped up in the ceiling I now pull that down in winter with a, with a big uh, fan pump and distribute it through the house so that I warm the house when it's only 15, 17 outside mm. and I've got 55 degree air in the roof. Mm. I pull that down into the house with a heat recovery unit and it's got filter in it so it you know, takes out all the dust and stuff in the ceiling and so on. But the other beauty about that is it maintains a positive pressure in the house and it keeps dust from getting in through the windows and all the cracks and so on. That's something that people should be looking at. Um, heat pumps instead of bloody gas-fired heaters, hot water and so on like that. You can, this is all in the building's plan, mm. you know it. Know. What about <laughs> we, the businesses, though? What about these people who, who go to those conferences and, like, they're not coordinated? There's no government policy that's, that's coordinating them, so they're sort of ruthlessly having to elbow each other out of the space. Well, this is where the, the zero emissions communities um, can help. And I've just, I've just come away from um, last week a talk with the CEO of Brisbane City. And he's very keen to look at how we can, make, uh, how we can move Brisbane to a, to a zero emissions community. And that's not just the Brisbane City Council's operations. That's the whole of Brisbane City. That's every person, every business heading to a zero emissions position. And that's where you get the big business involved. And you start having a whole lot of incentive programs that you can build in. You, you have awards. You regularly promote the businesses that are really moving to zero emissions. And, and if you can get the Brisbane City Council and the Lord Mayor on side, if Brisbane is to be a true new world city, as the previous Lord Mayor Campbell Newman was promoting and Graham Quirk, the current yeah. Lord Mayor, is now promoting, how can a new world city not be zero emissions? Mm. I think so we'll leave it. it on that note, David. Oh, thank you. <laughs> We've really yeah. run through a lot of time, but I thank you so much for telling us about it. So how can a city not be, you know, zero a emissions? A world city if it's not zero emissions. That's right. Yeah. So we yeah. get all the Lord Mayors to, to get on board with that. I think that's probably where it is happening. Local government, a lot of people are telling me that. that's where the rubber hits the road, as yeah. they say. That's yeah. right. All right. Well, I can see you're an engineer. You just love solving problems. Thank you very much for giving us your time today. And thank, pleasure, you. Vivian. thank you for this interview. CR celebrating 40 years of radical radio. You're listening to the Beyond Zero Emission show. We report on climate action in the community, and now Viv talks to Daryl Tonkinson about grasslands. Daryl Tonkinson is an ecologist and he's joining us at, for the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show in Ballarat. We're in the middle of Victoria and all around us outside the city is grasslands and volcanic plains which are very beautiful to look at and I really don't know the history of them. So Dale, could you describe this particular landscape around us and a little bit about how you got involved in managing it? 
the grasslands in this region today are largely uh, exotic grasslands with uh, native with uh, skerricks of native pasture through them, and the native grasslands that once covered this area are now extremely rare. So the figures that are generally quoted for native grasslands in Victoria are around 0.1 percent of what originally occurred. Uh, in this region, it's probably closer to 0.01 percent. So we really have very little left. Most of it's on roadsides and a few small patches in some horse paddocks that I know of. Uh, beyond that, there's not very much left. So the basalt plains here, uh, the basalt country really runs from pretty close to the South Australian border right into the inner western suburbs and northern suburbs of Melbourne. Uh, much of that's uh, quite new basalt. Uh, as little as 10,000 years since volcanic eruptions. However, much of the area to the uh, north of Ballarat is, is quite some uh, millions of years older. So it's a much older basalt. It's also got slightly higher rainfall and was just so perfectly suited for uh, grazing and cropping country that it was converted very early on. So there's just really very little left in this area. Are there any projects to restore the native grasses? I'm thinking in terms of the climate challenge that we're facing, falling rainfall in southern parts of Australia. Maybe those native grasses might be more resilient. Some farmers have mentioned that to me. Is there any project to restore them? Limited projects. There's a project that was federally funded uh, from 2005 through 8 uh, called the Grassy Ground Cover restoration project which I was involved in and that uh, trialled re-establishment of one hectare blocks at 15 sites across the grasslands of Victoria and it's shown that it's possible but it's also shown that it's quite expensive to do uh, which really points to the fact that we need to look after every skerrick that we have left. The, the costs are often in the order of eighty dollars to $100,000 per hectare to restore and that's restoration to something that is grassland but, but nothing overly special in grassland and will need to be managed very actively for the next 20 to 30 years to even approach a grassland in the longer term. Just tell us what the costs would be, sort of how, how would you spend that much money on restoring grassland? <laughs> much of it's uh, around getting the site suitable and removing all the weeds and weed seed that are, are there and the technique that was found to be most efficient uh, involved scalping the top 10 centimetres of soil off and storing that somewhere else, uh, potentially even growing your potatoes on that soil rather than using it for grasslands. So you've got some machinery and some good follow-up required there, but also to get the seeds of these grassland plants uh, requires quite a deal of time and it's manual labour, uh, and then working out which ones are viable and worth sowing uh, actually quite takes quite a deal of time. Then you've, you've got the, the follow-up management for the first couple of years uh, just to make sure everything's happening. Could you just tell me a bit about yourself and how you got in, interested in grasslands? I started out in grasslands back in the early 80s uh, with La Trobe University in the botany department where I was uh, a student and we had a small project to manage the sunshine diuris which is one of the most endangered plants of the basalt grasslands. Uh, it's a native orchid which uh, by the 1980s was down to a single site on a railway line in sunshine uh, and less than 100 plants. Mm. Uh, 
the species has, despite all the efforts that we've put into it, actually gone backwards since then. And uh, in the wild, we're down to around 70, I believe, these days. Mm. So from that, I had a funded project from the Native Plants Preservation Society uh, to do some monitoring and work on grasslands. And about the same time, we inherited a, a small grassland reserve in the, amongst the chemical factories in Laverton beside oh. the Prince's Highway, mm. which uh, we started replanting the orchid and uh, other native plants. Mm. Well, apparently, you know, the Beyond Zero Mission's work is trying to think of climate solutions and we've published a report on the land use sector and it's a discussion paper because obviously there's lots of different approaches to this so we're really open to new ideas but regarding just grassland apparently 30 or 40 percent of the earth is covered by grassland and these grasses already store a lot of carbon so do you see an ecological benefit to managing grasslands more deliberately as a carbon sink? Much of the, the carbon that can be stored in the long term is underground. Uh, all of the above ground carbon storage is prone to either grazing or burning from time to time, both of which are really important processes in grassland surviving in the first place. I've just presented Dale with a bunch of, what, a very pretty bunch of grasses, I thought, from my morning walk around Clunes, and he's just said they're all weeds, but now he's picked out two. Uh, so, yes, you, you've collected a, a, a very nice bunch of uh, pasture plants here. Uh, you've got dock and you've got wild oats. You, you've got phalaris, uh, so that's dock. And you've got some Yorkshire fog grass, and this is a type of phalaris. Uh, but in amongst them, amazingly, the, you've, you've managed to find a couple of native grassland plants. So one, one is the silvery-leafed uh, cottony groundsel, or fireweed, which is a really good coloniser of little patches of bare ground. So we tend to overgraze our pastures, so we do get bits of bare ground. So it's no great surprise there's a bit of that floating around. And the other one is a type of wallaby grass, so one of the native grassland species. And this one's got a quite tightly clustered head with lots of seeds in there at the moment, which I'm just pulling out to have a look at. And this one is actually the brown-backed wallaby grass. You can see on this seed, it's got a nice little chocolate brown section on its seed. All the other wallaby grasses tend to be pale straw-coloured there, so it is actually quite easy to identify this one. It tends to occur in slightly wetter spots in in pasture and probably hangs on more in, in... unmanaged pastures more than most other natives simply because it's in those wetter spots and it's used to competing against plants in in situations where there's both fertility and moisture which is what uh, most of our weeds are also very good at is exploiting uh, extra moisture because many of them come from Europe a higher rainfall climate uh, and with much more with much younger soils post-glaciation in the northern hemisphere and so they tend to be more fertile soils than our Australian soils. So yes, we, we, we do have a few natives that do hang on even in, in quite poor pastures. In particular with the wallaby grass, the potential that has as a, a good perennial grass that will grow in uh, 
fertile soils and produce quite decent amounts of forage for, for stock. Ah. So it, it's not necessarily a bad species even from a grazier's point of view. Yeah. Uh, so yes, I think there's uh, a really big opportunity for a lot of our farmers and this is where farming groups and farming cooperatives may have the potential to uh, uh, provide landholders with uh, much greater information as to what mm-hmm. they have, what they might have and how they deal with it. I think that's great. Thank you very much for that. Other systems probably have greater potential. Uh, so forests and, and woodlands probably have greater potential mm-hmm. in the short term at least for locking up carbon in the soil. I've been involved in the project with uh, replanting native woody native species, so shrubs and small trees that can be harvested for biofuels, so uh, a renewable fuel source, but also with uh, locking up uh, carbon in the soil through the the root systems and through uh, the use of biochar. Uh, during the establishment process, which often results in much better growth rates of many of these native species. Can you tell us a bit of what the species are and a little bit, little bit more for the listeners what biochar really is? Because that's in the report as well. I haven't read that chapter yet, but <laughs> there's a lot in it. Biochar is really just a form of charcoal that's been uh, produced under very careful conditions uh, in some specialised but not overly expensive machinery and it has particular characteristics because of the temperature it was created at. locks up a lot of waste products in the soil, particularly Mm. organic uh, compounds, which uh, many of which we've put there through our herbicides and Mm. fertilisers, but also seems to be very good at promoting the growth of things like mycorrhizal fungi, which are things that uh, often grow in conjunction with plants and help plants get their nutrition. So we strongly suspect that's the role that biochar is playing in the establishment Mm. of these biofuel plantations uh, and species that are often very difficult to uh, get established they seem to be establishing much better with the use of biochar which will also lock up carbon in the soil in itself mm. longer term. So some of the species we're using are wattles, uh, many of the other native peas, uh, some of the daisy bushes uh, as well as eucalypts and, and tea trees and, and the like. So a, a wide range which we're keen to see explored in the context that it may provide a, a cycle through which farming land can be put, uh, can still be productive and in terms of producing biofuels that even the farmer themselves could use for biodiesel, but at the same time to regenerate the productivity of the soil and uh, get much better crops yeah. Uh, in the the period afterwards. One of the interviews I did uh, that impressed me most, and there's a case study of this farm in our Beyond Zero Emissions book, um, was at Gulgong, up uh, Henry Lawson country. And he does direct drilling into the native grasses, and he's tried to re-establish native grasses after quite a few years, almost uh, 20 years, I think, he's tried to sort of phase out the exotic grasses and keep re-encouraging the native grasses but then he direct drills his crop in there after the sheep have come in and 
grazed down the stubble. He then direct drills. And he reckons that the weeds and the um, grasses, when they're dormant, are sort of overshadowed by the crop. And then you harvest the crop. And then the grasses come up again. And I, I still find this almost like magic because I can't imagine, you know, Patterson's Curse and Scottish thistles and things sort of being overshadowed by a barley crop, but he reckons it works. And it's, I think it's mainly because there's such a biodiversity in his paddocks now that, that they all outcompete each other and there's no one thing that can dominate. Have you um, got an opinion about that sort of farming, which is sort of uh, no-till and virtually no-kill, not too much pesticide? Uh, that's a, a, a really interesting way of dealing with cropping country and has been looked at in a number of places around Australia. Uh, it's probably got a lot of value for the medium term for continuing cropping. The issue that I probably have is some people have tried selling this as a way of uh, increasing biodiversity however for, for grasslands especially native grasslands that are the ones that are most threatened uh, it is really only allowing a, a very small proportion of that grassland community to survive with, with the cropping. Uh, as you say it's, it, the cropping is uh, totally obliterating most of the things underneath. Fortunately some of the native grasses are tough enough to survive it uh, but very few of the other grassland plants can survive so it is a relatively low biodiversity system it's certainly better than than no native biodiversity yeah. and and some of the the farmer is finding some of the advantages of that but uh, we're always looking for ways in which that can be manipulated further to increase the biodiversity at the same time farmers as all independent businesses and uh, I've read a bit about the land care movement which un unifies them to some extent and there's other organisations that unify them but I wonder what you think uh, I think there's been a lot of mistakes made in Australia you know since Whitefella came here and brought all the sheep and and then the rabbits and you know superphosphate and I don't know there seems to be people talk to me about lots of things that look good at the time they seem to be the best practice at the time but then they were really backward steps what do you think you know now in this critical time when we are talking about climate change impacting on our food production and on our just our survival um, would be the best help governments can give to people in the land on the land I think uh, advice and information is, is really critical. Uh, advice is always taken cautiously from governments and I probably understand why, uh, but, it, but particularly the information side of things and doing the research. But I think there's, there's another player in, in the system that has huge potential and these are sort of farming cooperative type arrangements, not the traditional cooperative that sells the, the produce so much as things like the Birchip Cropping Group in Victoria and the Condinan Group in South West Australia uh, where these groups come together look at the needs of their farmers and, and then through group action go and source funds uh, research information and provide that back to the farmers to maximise both their sustainability and their profitability uh, And but these groups seem to be having a lot of success in recent times and I think probably an expanded version of these has huge potential in the future with the increasing cost of the most up-to-date machinery that might be able to help them achieve sustainability. Uh, these sort of things just aren't affordable for smaller farming enterprises. So we, we seem to be at a bit of a, a crossroads with farming enterprises. Either you go 
go big and you become an agri business mm. in in a much larger system and you have shareholders and, and employees or you go to uh, a situation where a whole lot of family type farmers uh, come together and, and share resources uh, to get the best machinery, the best advice and, and make decisions. And that has huge potential for uh Landscapes and managing landscapes. If people come together as a cooperative and are, are talking to each other on a regular basis, you can coordinate how you might phase land through different uses, and and people, uh, the the cooperative may even be able to assist with the finances of different family farms as part of their uh, land goes through some of these phases that are less income generating in the short term. The last question is about the um, government, federal government's direct action policy, which none of us really, everyone I speak to, they've. Never really seen it in action and don't really know much about it and I have interviewed Greg Hunt about it but it, it wasn't exactly clear and that was about a year ago. My impression that none of it has really climate change at the centre of mind. You know, it's not really climate solutions, it's make work things and it's... Uh you know, as the people at Ararat said to me, well, they're doing carbon farming, but there's no money in it for them, so it's not really an incentive for other people to really take this to scale. Is that your impression? And if so, what do you think the carbon solutions are that the land sector could implement with government aid and, you know, encouragement? The carbon farming initiative is definitely one that scale will be a major issue for. Uh, to be efficient and locking up carbon on your property. Some figures that I was involved in developing a few years back suggested you were going to be dealing with 100 hectares minimum, which is a large amount of property for most landholders to even think of locking up. Now, 100 hectares might be able to be coordinated between two or three adjoining landholders, yeah. but you the auditing costs and the management costs for carbon plantings was going to be very significant and that's why we felt the 100 hectares was going to be the minimum size that would cover those efficiently. Why do you say locked up? In these areas, uh, the carbon... Most carbon farming will involve planting of woody vegetation, uh, which for most farming enterprises is going to be a reduction in productivity at the very minimum and many and to manage that carbon farm that carbon farm mm. in the sense it will require uh, very very careful management of particularly stock uh, stock can change the uh, the amount of carbon that are being that's being locked up very rapidly mm. by grazing of uh, uh, shrubs within the system so you can't see it as a, a grasslands thing you know that you lock up the carbon in the grassland in the humus there is some scope for that however I think the the report you're referring to uh, clearly identifies that the the quantities that can be locked up just through soil carbon uh, in farming country is a relatively small contribution to, to the response that we need uh, for climate change so I, I think the grasslands both native and uh, pastoral grasslands have some capacity to contribute uh, but the the quantities that are going to be achieved are not great and they're probably not going to be the most efficient in terms of the landholders getting paid and as you mm. mentioned the people in Ararat mm. have said they're doing it but they're not getting paid for it at mm. this stage so I think there's going to have to be a lot of changes in the system before that experiences wide take up for carbon storage through pasture areas particularly. Thank you very much. We've been talking to uh, Dale Tonkinson in Ballarat. 
Thank you for listening tonight. You can find Beyond Zero Emissions land care and stationary and energy reports on our website. And as David said, we are always looking for volunteers with expertise to help with our ongoing work. Thank you to the team tonight, Teddy, Jody, Viv and Roger. Our guests were David Hood and Daryl Tonkinson. Stay tuned to 3CR for Save Albert Park and don't forget to tune in next Monday at 5pm and Friday at 8.30am for more Beyond Zero Emissions Radio.